Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. We're back with Anthony Marr, who's a professor at Leeds Beckett University in the UK. Um, Anthony was on last week talking about his academic journey, uh, talking about how uh, he's traveled from uh, being a uh, disability sport researcher, moving into um, different universities throughout his career, and now uh, landing at Leeds Beckett as a professor. Um, so. Anthony, thanks for coming back on. Um, appreciate you uh, being here. My pleasure. So let's jump right into this because we've we've talked about your past, where you've been. Um, I'm hoping that you can give us an understanding of what is what does adapted physical education look like, or students with disabilities who are going to school in the UK. Um, are these inclusive classes, meaning they are with a uh, any other student that's in third or fifth grade? Or are these separate, like, adapted physical education classes? Or are they in a separate school entirely? What does that look like? In short, Risto, it's, it's, all, of, it's all of the above. So I mentioned that kind of APE as a, as a concept and a profession doesn't really, isn't particularly prevalent over here. So we'll have, um, and just a clarification from me, um, there's a key focus in the UK on on um, identity-first language. So over here, very often we'll use um, disabled children and young people rather than children, young people with disabilities. And and in general, obviously, we're not talking about the homogenous group. That's the language that's preferred by um, by disability activist groups and advocacy groups. Uh, and the only reason I say that is that I know that might might not translate well to to US listeners. Um, so in, in general, there'll be disabled children, young people in mainstream physical education um, lessons. And we use, and I use mainstream because I don't believe that those lessons or mainstream education is always inclusive. So inclusion means something a little bit different to me. Um, and we also have kind of separate, self-contained, segregated uh, schools where PE does occur. Um, so essentially, there'll be mainstream primary and secondary schools that have disabled children and young people. And in primary schools, that's usually delivered either by a class teacher who might teach across a number of curriculum areas, a specialist PE teacher, because there's been a key drive in general to try and uh, encourage and support PE specialism in primary schools for loads of different reasons. And sometimes it might also be delivered by a um, external sports coach. So someone external to the university, uh, sorry, the school. And the school often has a fund available to buy in that so-called expertise if necessary. Um, and in secondary schools, it's, it's usually the PE specialist who will deliver PE to, to all children. Mm -hmm. um, and within the kind of segregated um so-called, we call them special schools, a term I'm not particularly fond of, but that's the one that's used. Um, we'll, we'll have the same type of approach um, in that there'll either be a specialist PE teacher, there might be a classroom teacher who's delivering PE, or there might be an external sports coach. So the system is quite frank, fragmented. It just depends on the school that, that that disabled child or young person finds themselves. So do you have an undergraduate program or a master's degree program that you train teachers to only teach 
adapted PE in the UK? Or are there teachers who have a, do you have to have another certification to teach students with disabilities? You don't need another certification. Um, so in the vast majority of instances, any specialist, so-called specialist training that happens, comes through a kind of continued professional development packages um, as part of kind of the, the professional development of in-service trainers, tra teachers, sorry. In the vast majority of instances, SEND and PE is neglected when it comes to those professional development opportunities because schools in general feel that they have more important priorities. So in other words, that professional training, specialist professional training doesn't happen. Um, there are master's programs that exist throughout the country, and I might be wrong here, I'm sure someone will send me an email and correctly, correct me, but the University of Worcester, for example, is, is a place where um, there's a key focus on more specialist provision, particularly at master's, master's level. Um, but I think that program is quite unique in that respect. There might be a few others across the country, but not, not ones that I'm, I'm particularly aware of. Okay. So can you talk to me about like, what do you do for research? Like, what, what are, like, research lines that you're interested in, uh, in general? Right, okay. It's strange in that pupils with SCND, and again, that's another UK t term. It is used in other parts of Western Europe in particular, but it's very UK-centric the way I use it. Um, while the vast majority of my research focuses on that particular group of children and young people it is quite eclectic in nature um and i suppose it it mirrors my research journey and that i actually don't i don't know if you want to hear this risto or your your listeners i don't really read pe literature that much anymore i especially don't read ap literature anymore i'm interested in what's going on in other fields of inquiry and interested in other disciplines and how that might help us to problematize the experiences of disabled children and young people so essentially my research focuses on centering the experiences and amplifying the voices of children with SEND in educational context in general and also in PE in particular but I'm starting very slowly to move a bit away from PE um, but it also relates to so that's the first line of inquiry and the second one before you go Relates into the second to one, trying can, to, you, can you give the acronym that you're using? Yes, yeah, sorry. So SEND relates to pupils with special educational needs and disabilities. Um, and in general, SEND, and again, it's a very contested concept, relates to children who require um, support additional, learning support additional to that offered their age peers. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that generally is how government define it, but it's a very slippery and contested concept and term. And obviously it's become extremely political over time. Yeah. Um, so in other words, working with children um, who might not have a legal classification of disability, mm -hmm. uh, but might require uh, additional support needs. Um, you know, so children with... Uh, social, emotional, mental health difficulties, as as one example, mm -hmm. um, but also you know I work with children with sensory impairments and um, autistic children and young people more more generally. 
Okay, so that's the first line of inquiry. And the second one relates to um, to working with key st- stakeholders in education settings to try and support them to provide more valuable and meaningful educational experiences for children with SCND. So I'm talking about senior leaders in schools, teachers, teaching assistants, educational psychologists, all those who are part of the kind of, I suppose, the support mechanisms that are in place to support children in schools. Yeah. So let's focus on one of those. What have you, what are kind of like the major things you found when working with autistic students in physical education settings? Okay, so I'd say fairly recently I've been doing quite a lot of a lot of work with uh, Justin Hagel, who I'm sure many of your listeners will will know and will know of his excellent work in in APE in the states. Um, and we've been working on a project recently. We've had one one output, I suppose, one publishable output for it. And Justin and I, we've been doing bits together, but, and we've been talking about research for four years now. Um, but doing a lot of talking and not a great deal of doing. Um, but one of the things that that we've we've worked on is I talked about I'm interested in, in concepts and what's going on in fields outside of, of PE. Um, I'm really interested in relationship between our ideas of inclusion and the concept of belonging. Um, so one of the projects I've done with with Justin is to problematize the concept of inclusion by exploring the extent and ways in which autistic children and young people feel like they belong in the educational spaces that they find themselves. So that's been a key area of focus um, and more specifically exploring the kind of interactions and relationships they build with their peers, teachers and other stakeholders within education settings. Um, I'm focusing in particular on the more transient and dynamic nature of belonging. So belonging, obviously, it's not a fixed state of being. Uh, People can feel different degrees of belonging and it can manifest in very different ways depending on the situation, the context and the circumstances. And I find that really fascinating from a physical education perspective because there are very interesting spaces in PE, like locker rooms, like gymnasiums, like sports fields, um, where where belonging can become extremely elusive for, or feelings of belonging can become elusive for autistic children and young people. And again, just to note, um, and this might jar with some US, um, or not with some US listeners, is uh, we, I'm using identity first language uh, because over here in particular, um, autistic people is a term that's in general um, most widely preferred by uh, autistic people. Hmm. Interesting. So does your does your research spill over into like community programs or sports programs or are you looking more specifically in the education setting like the traditional like school setting? I, th- I think historically... Um, it has spilled to some degree into community settings and, sorry, into into sport and physical activity more generally. But I think it's because of where I've positioned myself. I mentioned uh, previously, 
I'm now in a school of education rather than a school of sport and physical activity, which is where I've been situated in the past. The focus, and this isn't driven by the school at all, it's driven by where I want to position myself in the future, is being much more to do with education and schools in particular. But obviously, you know, it's important to note that we can't separate what's going on in schools to family structures and wider community processes, you know, so while it is primarily within schools, there is an acknowledgement there of the way in which these different contexts um, overlap and work together. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so last time you were on, I don't know, 2019, a long time ago, lots have changed. Wow. Uh, you talked about uh, working with students with visual impairments and s- simulating that teaching experience for pre-service teachers, which was interesting to me that because I in my very short unit when I talk about students with disabilities when I was teaching Cal State Fullerton we we did that in a little bit uh, but you since then published a lot more on this and you looked at the students experiences which is you know arguably what we should be looking at right um, so can you talk to us about that of what that research looks like what have you done what have you kind of learned in in talking with uh, with students so initially, the um, the first research kind of gathered data from teacher educators. Is that the term you use mm-hmm. over there, teacher educator? Yeah, yeah. Uh, teacher educators and trainee teachers about their experiences of simulating visual impairment. So that was the kind of study that we talked that I talked to you about, and that was with Andrew Sparks and Dean Williams. And I'm, I'm really, I think I'm really self-centered, you know. So I always forget to to mention collaborators, and I really, I really should do that. So I do apologise um, if anyone's listening. Um, but this, I suppose the study that we did that followed on to that was that we took the vignettes that were constructed from those experiences, and we. Um, we fed them back to um, to visually impaired people, um, primarily adults, but some young people um, were part of the sample, as far as I can remember. And that that study kind of has resulted in three areas of focus. The first one was their views and experiences, as in they people with VI, their views and experiences of what may be learned from a pedagogical perspective, from simulating VI. And that study uh, has been published with Justin Hagel and Andrew Sparks. And the other two areas of focus, one is under review, explores the ethics of sighted people simulating VI from the perspective of people with VI, Hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when you wrap your head around Um, it, it, it does become a very ethical question, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just about, it wasn't as simple as, you know, that hasn't been published yet, but none of these questions are so complex and nuanced. It wasn't as simple as, from the perspective of our participants at least, no, that shouldn't be done because of X, Y, and Z. One of the things that surprised me, and I'm not sure why, because I assume there'd be a lot more resistance to it mm-hmm. from our participants than there was. Um, there was degrees of... of um, of acceptance or in some degrees it was better received than I expected. But what was more interesting was the complexity and the nuance of the discussions about how 
and why it should be done in particular ways and what the key ethical challenges were from the perspective of the participants with VI. And some of it related to um, using touch as a pedagogical tool, as an example. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily to do with the simulation of VI in and of itself. It was to do with how the person simulating the VI was supported in an ethically sensitive manner. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, there were other things to do with one of the key ethical concerns, and again, I'm preempting this, given that it hasn't been published, was to do with um, the absence of people with VI from these simulations, um, the construction of the simulations, but also kind of the enactment or delivery of these simulations. Um, because obviously from the initial study, it was a sighted teacher educator, or it was a collection of sighted teacher edu educators who were constructing these simulations mm -hmm. without input from people with VI. Uh, and that was considered to be, obviously, it sounds obvious, doesn't it, a key ethical concern from yeah. their perspective. Yeah. And I think there's a lot and of the areas. Third, oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, I think there's a lot of areas in our, in our research in the past that we've done a lot of research on populations without actually including them. And I think that's, you know, working with indigenous populations, working with, um, you know, different racial groups or different community groups. And I think that there's uh, different countries that do this a lot better and have specific, you know, and I don't remember if it's in Australia or New Zealand, but if you're looking for a government grant and you're working with a specific population, you have to have like um, a person from that community on your advisory council to kind of gain entry and to be even eligible for that. Because I know that there's been a lot of researchers going in and studying different groups instead of getting that, you know, internal feedback and actually asking that community of like, mm. what do you need? How can I help you? Instead of saying, I have an agenda and I'm going to do this not whether you like it or not, but I'm going to do this and then I'm going to publish work without your input. So, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no other way for that for me. And, you know, people might not like to hear this, but it's exploitation, isn't it? You know, it's a form of symbolic violence. The different ways that you can look at this through, you know, theoretical and just moral lenses. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a moral bad. It, it, it doesn't, you know, it, we don't have to reduce it to anything more than that. Um, and it's, it's particularly prevalent with, obviously, you mentioned kind of various um, groups that experience degrees of discrimination, social oppression, um, minority groups, um, and, you know, disabled children, young people in particular tie really, really neatly in, into that, that level of exploitation. Um, and, yeah, I don't want to go off topic, but, you know, one of the things I'm most critical of is my positionality mm -hmm. and the power and influence I have as a you know, white, cisgender, non-disabled man um, who is, you know, reasonably well-educated and working with, with, with the types of group that I work, groups that I work with. Um, yeah, sorry, I, yeah. I did go off on a bit of a, a yeah. tangent there. So you had a third and, part. And I suppose the final, yeah, the final part, the third part is the one that's in a bit earlier stages of development because I'm really struggling with this one. Um because I've done something similar in the past and I've got, I got lost down a bit of a rabbit hole, a, a kind of conceptual abstract rabbit hole. 
Uh, but the third one relates to the authenticity of these sim- simulations with a particular focus on cognitive and, em- and effective empathy and the ways and extent to which a sighted person can embody in any meaningful, authentic way a visual impairment through simulation. So that one's probably going to take me a little bit wa- a, a while because I'm just really struggling with that one at the moment. It's yeah. blown my mind. So what, what's the kind of area of research or something that you're looking forward to that kind of really, really jazzes you up? Like what, what excites <laughs> you? Like where, where do you see like, if I could find the answer to this or this is the group of people or this is the community or this is the area that I want to go in and learn more about? I like the way you change that that kind of focus then Risto and you know I've been guilty for this and I think I think it ties into what you said earlier what's the question that I want answering what's the problem I want solving and I think it's really important for me in particular to try and not make it about me now I'm in a position now where I can do that you know because we all do these things for our our own personal and professional reasons and you know I'm where I want to be now I always wanted to be a professor well not always but you know there's a point in time where it did and I am now and it gives me the freedom and flexibility to explore areas that to, to do whatever I want basically um, but what I'm interested in is groups of people particularly groups of people who experience high degrees of social oppression marginalization discrimination and trying to understand what they want and what they need so the problems are very much centered in the experiences of marginalized groups so i'm excited really excited i had a meeting last week uh with the principal it, well it wasn't a meeting i i met i did meet i met with the principal of a school for for blind children um in my home my home city and again i probably got me someone needs to fact check my stuff but in the uk there's only about 14 schools left for, for blind kids that are specifically for um, blind children and again that's the terminology that's often favoured over here um, and two of them are within walking distance from where I live which is you know really coincidental um, and I've been following the school on Twitter for quite a while now and I've been interacting with the principal and he invited me into the school um, and I spent the day in the school and I've never been to a school a blind school before um, and it was just absolutely fascinating. It was so, it was so interesting, so inspiring. So I'm interested in working with that school and the very research engaged, which again, and this feeds into my prejudices, surprised me. Mm-hmm. So that's the group I'm really interested in working with at the moment. And in relation to the problem, I don't know what that is yet. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm looking forward to finding out. Well, after a couple of years, once you do that, you could come to Washington DC because there is one of the premier school for the blind universities in, uh, in Washington DC and you it's Metro accessible. So maybe, uh, maybe Amazing. a future trip. I'll, I'll be there. Sounds good. Uh, Even without the invite, I'll be there. Well, you know what? The invite is now public. So you're welcome. <laughs> so what about, Thanks, what about like a passion project? Like something that maybe hasn't been funded, but you want to, or you just like, it's kind of this idea in the, in the sky that you may eventually get to, or maybe 
something that you've started on but hasn't gained any traction, nobody cares, but you really care, care a lot about it? A good question. And I'd say my passion project at the moment, without trying to skip the question, is, is the one that I've just mentioned. And the reason I say that, and you mentioned a really important point, there's a real balance and a difficulty here in that I've very recently taken on a new role. So, so my role, and this isn't to provoke, promote myself, but just to get a sense of of how it's taken me away from some of the stuff I'm really passionate about. Um, I'm now director of research or one of the directors of research at Leeds Beckett University. So, so my role now is much more strategic than it ever has been in the past, um, which is fine. I get to, I get to uh, support early career researchers, which is something I've always done anyway. But, you know, there's more of a remit and there's more of a resource behind doing that now, which is something that I'm really passionate about. But it does mean that the types of projects that I've just mentioned that won't be funded, um, that are very much self-initiated, um, you know, they're becoming less frequent. And that's something that does really concern me. Um, but in relation to, you know, the types of projects that I'm interested in, no one else is. That's nearly every project that I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because mainstream education scholars are not interested in SEND in general in the UK and P scholars, no offense, are not interested in APE in general. Not that I claim to be an APE researcher, but hopefully you get the point. So there's very few people who really care about the research I do anyway, but I'm passionate about all of it. And the one I'm passionate about the most is the re- is working with um, with with the blind children. And, and I should note that that project won't be well, it might be, but it probably won't be to do with PE. Um, because one of the things that I've become interested in from that meeting is um, kind of multi-century approaches to different types of curriculum. And um, they seem to be really good at kind of cross-curricular approaches. And, you know, the boundaries between different subject areas are, are much more fluid, I found, in that context after one day. Um, than they often are in, in mainstream schools, over here at least. Yeah. And that's something that, that really fascinates me. That's interesting. And, and I guess one of the last questions I have for you is you, you brought up early that you, you rarely read like mainstream physical education research and less so on AP, and you're reading a lot more education research. And I remember um, I was at an ARA and uh, Dune McDonald said, aren't you excited? Like, are you going to see all of these sessions in education? This is like Michael Apple is talking and all these people are like, how do you even like consume all of this? And I, and I remember I was either like a first year professor or I was still in grad school and I'm like, my head was spinning just from the physical education content. Like it was so good and so into it. And, and I know that like really, good scholars who are forward thinking, who are moving the field forward, they read education research. They read the the stuff that's going on in general education or somebody that's doing research on policy is reading education policy and then moving it back into the PE field. So can you talk to me about what, like, when did you decide to move that way? Was it a part of this new job and like kind of maybe what journals do you do you focus 
it's a it's a good question. When I said I've moved beyond P and APE, I, I do read educational stuff, but I've moved even beyond that. You know, so you know, this is going to sound a bit strange. But one of one of the areas that I read a lot about is is kind of theatre studies and midwifery, and you know, just loads of different types of research. And I suppose I'm in a position now, and then you know, there's that much there's that much published now in general, in PE especially, that you're never going to be able to stay on top of everything. Yeah. And I say that to support this next thing, in, this next point in that. I think I'm in a position now, and I have been for quite a while, where I know the P and AP literature fairly well, mm-hmm. and I can just dip in and out of it every now and again just to keep abreast of developments, because there's nothing new under the sun. People are pushing the areas forward, I agree, but there's nothing new under the sun. Um, and Andrew Sparks, my former colleague at Leeds Becker, who I who I kind of you know hold up as one of the most influential people in my career, um, he was telling me eight years ago to stop reading P stuff. So I've been doing it for quite a long time, and that's not you know I'm not boasting about that at all. But it's not something that that's just happened because of this change in role. It's something I've I've always done. And a little t- a little tip for kind of early career researchers or even anyone, depending on where you are in the career, th- there isn't anything new under the sun necessarily. So one of the things that I try to do, and other people do it particularly well, much better than I do, is read further afield, get a sense of those concepts and how they might transfer, translate into PE and bring them into PE. And you will, people will think you're really creative, you're innovative, and you're pushing a field forward. But in my opinion, you're not. You're making important developments, and it is, it is contributing to the construction of knowledge in PE. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's not anything particularly new because I'll go into different fields and I'll talk to mainstream educationalists. So I'll. I'll speak to scholars in midwifery and they're like, we've been doing that for years. What are you talking about? That's not new, but it just seems new. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, do you know what? I've gone off on a bit of a rant there, so I can't remember the question. Have I answered it? Uh, you answer the first part, but I, as a great qualitative researcher, I asked four questions in one. Um, so <laughs> obviously you didn't get all of them. Uh, what are besides the theater studies and midwifery that maybe good journals to go to? What are the journals in that you're you're getting really interesting stuff from, like outside of the field of physical education and AP? Okay, um, let me have a little think about that. In relation to mainstream education, the ones that I read probably most. If I'm on a star UK based, um, so there's the British Journal of Sociology of Education, which I really like. Um, there's the British Educational Research Journal. Um, they're both, in my opinion, really, really top journals. And that's where you'll find uh, people like Apple, Stephen Ball, all the educational policy um, theorists in particular. Um, I'm trying to think because I, I never... It's more the focus of the research than a particular journal that draws me to anything. Mm-hmm. I've been reading a lot because I'm interested in the sensorium and, and I'm interested in um, 
multi-century approaches. I've been reading a lot on sound studies, for example, death studies, um, both of which I think are, are really solid journals. If I'm honest, Riss, though, and again, this isn't a criticism, it's just in relation to the type of research I'm drawn to, I don't read much of the the mainstream uh, American education journals. Um, and that's that, that's more or less because I think there's still quite a strong bi- kind of post-positivist bias. And a lot of that research, um, I'm not suggesting it's not valuable, far from it. In fact, it, it's just not of interest to me. Yeah. Um, so the, the high quality, qualitative research in those type of journals, I think are quite scarce. Um, so I... I, if I'm honest, I wish there was I wish there was better and more consistent qualitative research in those type of journals. Um, but but saying that, I'm not doing not I'm not doing anything to try and to try and change that. So I'm probably a bit of a hypocrite in that respect. Um, yeah. I don't think of journals that really. And uh, obviously, do you want to do like in the in the US? Uh, JTP is a good one. I'm not a big fan. Um, Again, because of the focus of um, of APAC, um, I think that's very quantitative in nature. Um, and again, I'm, I'm just not interested in that type of research. Um, I like JTPE. Uh, I like Quest. Um, and I always have done. That's one I've been drawn to. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's, there's, a, there's a whole world out there. You're never going to read all of what, what we want. Can you... Can you briefly give me an explanation of when you, when I say, when I ask you, like, how do you read articles? Like, or how do you, if you're, if you have four hours set one day and you're like, okay, I'm going to take four hours. I'm going to really take a deep dive into this. Do you go to the journal, look at the titles, click on the abstracts, choose what you take. And then when you get to actually reading that journal article, are you skimming reading in depth? Do you have a cup of tea? Do you do you drink it with wine at night in a mahogany-filled uh, uh, reading room? Like, what's your what's your process? That, that sounds nice. Um, I mean, definitely none of that because you know I'm still I still probably spend 25 of my working day sat on the bed uh, with a laptop on my legs uh, because space is space is tight round here, um, but. You make a really important point there. I think deep dive is really, really important. So one of the things that concerns me without going on a rant is um, how superficial some research has become because of the need to publish and the pressures that the system places upon us and we place on ourselves to publish. Yeah. And reading and properly immersing yourself in literature for me is absolutely crucial i try to advocate for slow research and i know that's really difficult to do based on the system we found ourselves in and we ourselves perpetuate um but reading for me is really important but because of the system i don't have the time and the luxury to read for leisure like i used to so a lot of my reading is around projects so belonging it would be sourcing research relating to belonging based on the keyword belonging and just spending as much time as possible pouring through relevant articles 
I don't read articles superficially. When I've identified an article that I, I deem is important for what I'm doing, I give it the time and the effort it deserves. Um, I'll sit down, I'll highlight, I'll make notes, usually on screen, because again, I haven't got access to a printer and you know I'm trying to be um trying to be eco-friendly in many respects. Um but but that's that's generally my process. I'll screen articles to identify ones of relevance based on keywords and I'll I'll get together, let's say, even if it's five or ten articles that are directly relevant to what I'm interested in, and I'll try and take as much time as possible poring over, reflecting on and thinking about them. And often a lot of the notes I make are retrospective notes when I've had properly, I've had time for the ideas to percolate. And do you, do you skip, do you skip to the method section when you're kind of screening the articles or you just like title all the way down, read the entire thing? Title, abstract, decisions made. And this isn't probably the most efficient way of doing it, but if I've, if I've made the decision based on the title and the abstract that the article is worthy of my attention, I'll read it all, regardless of what point I switch off, if I switch off at all. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the same with movies, Risto. If I've invested in a film, I won't, I won't walk away from a film, even if 30 minutes into it, I decide it's rubbish. I'll carry on watching it. I don't know why, but I do. And I'm the same with articles. I don't walk away once I've made that commitment. Yeah, that's interesting. So my, my partner is a uh, is a book editor, and she always tells me, okay. she's like, look, it's, oh, there's too many good, good books in the world for you to read a crappy book. Because I'll, like, I'll start reading something, <laughs> and I'll go one-third of the way in, and I'm like, this book sucks. I like, I do not enjoy, but I've, I've committed like five hours of my life into this already. And she goes, put it down, pick up another one. I'm like, I'm so committed to this. I don't want to. She goes, too many good books in the world. You don't need to read it. And so I've, I've gotten a lot better of like, if I, if I'm reading something or getting into something, whether it's a book or an article, or I never used to do this with movies, but now, like, I'll watch a movie. I'm like, this is just not going to do it for me. And I'll just turn it off. Uh, and this is just, like, <laughs> recent development, like, the last couple of years. But, uh, yeah, I'm always interested to hear how other people read. Because, one, the time to sit down and read, especially, yeah. like, in the U.S. context, if you're in a teaching-heavy university, you're teaching four classes every semester, grading you might have 160 students over the course of the semester and you're grading and you're doing this stuff and then you're expected to produce research and in order for you to write that research and do the research you have to be you know up to date on the field and how do you get that time and i think you know and i think that that's why in in the u.s and research one universities they publish a lot more research and they publish a lot more high quality research oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes because some of these professors are teaching one class a semester with six students. So yes, there's not a lot of grading. There's, you know, it might be a seminar class that they're running and they have a lot more time to read. So I'm just always curious of how, how other people do it. And I think that's a, that's a good, uh, good way. And maybe I'll get to that point, Risto. Maybe I'll get to the point where you are now. Um, 
I'm not sure it will because I'm stuck on my ways. Um, but I get it. It's definitely more time efficient. Definitely more time efficient. I don't. So I read a lot. I read a lot of fiction as well. That's my pleasure reading. I, I won't. Le- I won't read academic work for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't find it pleasurable, but I don't. And I'm the same with, uh, with fiction books. I, mm-hmm. I just don't put them down. Do you, do you do and it's books? hard when you're in. You're on page. It's hard when you're on page five hundred of a Stephen King classic, and <laughs> you just need to see it to the end. <laughs> do you know what? I never do audio books. I listen to podcasts. Obviously, but yeah. never, never do audio books. Um, yeah, I'm not sure why. I like, you know what? I like. I'm a very kind of. I like the haptic. I'm a very tactile person. I like mm. the touch of a book. I like to thumb through the pages. Yeah, interesting. I've uh, I've almost solely do my in like pleasure reading in audio format because I just and that's, right. that was one of the reasons why I started the podcast because I just couldn't get to reading. Like pulling out the, like I multitask when I'm gardening or when I'm like walking from one place to the other or when I'm driving, I'm listening to audiobooks or podcasts almost entirely. So, and, and they've gotten a lot better. Like, uh, just a total plug because this is the best audiobook I've ever listened to is the Beastie Boys um, autobiography. And it's read by all of these different people. Like, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell and, you know, all these wow. different people read the chapters of the book and it was like, I flew through it, but I don't know. I, I tried to pick up, uh, actually a physical book when I was in Finland and I got through like 50 pages and it's on the, at the bottom of my backpack still I just don't <laughs> have that time to sit down. So. Uh, uh- I'll have to give it a try. I've I've got a, a six year old son. He's nearly seven, and and he I got him a Harry Potter audio books, and he loves he loves listening mm-hmm. to that to those books. Um, again, it's just I don't know if I just missed it, but it's just something I've never kind of invested in. Well, get a free trial, get the Beastie Boys book, and you might you I'm, might start. I'm on it. it. <laughs> so who knows? And I've got you to thank for if I do. And you're very welcome for that. You're very welcome for that. <laughs> So thanks, Anthony. Uh, this has been a great conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed uh, learning a lot more about your research and kind of where, and even how you research and how you read and, and all that. So um, I'll put the, your kind of latest articles are gonna be in the, sh- uh, in the notes section. So you can look through if you're listening and wanna read, read those, you can click on the DOIs and get access to those papers. So uh, thanks for coming on, appreciate it. Brilliant. Thanks for having me, Risto. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals 
who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.